Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer and try Peloton risk-free with Peloton Rentals at onepeloton.com slash bike slash rentals. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry, only on BlueNile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands, all hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help. From fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Loyalty to Rangers is what binds us. And together, we are stronger. Launching for the 2021 season, the MyJers membership program is a new way to get even closer to the club you love. It's the one place where you can access benefits like ticketing priority, club discounts, and exclusive competitions and experiences. There's even a limited edition welcome gift when you join. Visit rangers.co.uk slash mygers to join today. Always Rangers, always loyal, always rewarded. Jones delivers. Manchester, brace yourself. Rangers, 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 easy, okay, okay. Well, Rangers, very strong. Again, I've got a battle fever on, but I fancy Rangers to win the game. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to a special edition of Straight From Ibrox for the Battle Fever podcast. Today, I'm joined by the man behind the archives on the Rangers archives page, Stephen Miller. Stephen, Good afternoon, how are you? Yeah, it's fine, thanks. Thanks for having me on. Good, good, good. Is this is this your podcast debut or is it just your podcast, your debut? Uh, I've done one before for a, for another, a non-Rangers non one. Right, so it's a Rangers just debut. Just a Scottish one, but, but for a Rangers podcast, this is my... This is my debut, so go nice. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> uh, we're joined today by our club historian, David Mason. David, good afternoon. How are you? I'm good. I'm good, Scott. Yeah, it's good Good to join you two guys in the, in the podcast. Looking forward to it. Good, good. We're going to kind of start, David, and, and obviously your kind of love of the club and, and how you, what were your influences, etc., cetera, and, and, and taking you towards a kind of Rangers persuasion. So, We'll start there and then obviously we'll work towards your, your capacity as club historian, etc. And, and some of the stories mm-hmm. that you can obviously tell us. So who, who were your influences to get, obviously, getting in the Rangers and becoming a Rangers supporter? Do you want me to go back to when I was younger, first of all? Yes. <laughs> but, yes. Uh, I'll, I'll maybe give you the background to my my, uh, my love for the club. That's, that's probably the best way. But um, really from a, as, as, as early as I can remember, uh, my father tells me, he took me to Firhill uh, as a baby. I also went to Cathkin Park, Third Lanark, as a child as well. Um, you know, by that I mean probably a baby, one, two, something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, my first kind of recollections have been in big matches because these are the ones that really stand out. You know, Ibrox, I remember seeing a game you know, against Kilmarnock, took me into the stand, the main stand, and one against Hearts. And, you know, it's just you spend more time looking around the crowd and, you know, trying to. As a young child, I would probably have been about four or five at that time. And then I went to, and Stephen knows this because he's featured in quite a few of his programmes as well. I went to the um, the 1964 Cup final against Dundee. It was only eight at that time. Sat down front in the wall. And and I think when you when you watch a team of that kind of quality and in front of a crowds of well over 100,000 and see them winning a 
cup as they did that day and even getting a chance to see the cup because at that time they had a lap of honour, which they don't have nowadays, and watching the players running around uh, around the, the track at Hamden. Um, then actually you, you, you become uh, taken completely by the whole experience. And uh, and so really from, from then on, I was a committed Rangers fan. Um, all my daughters were covered in the RFC logo. <laughs> uh, are you ready or ready and whatever? I'm not getting to that debate. But, uh, <laughs> the, young, the youngsters uh, might not know what daughters are, do you? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, so that, that, that was really it. And, and it, just after that, you know, you just you, you, you develop a strong affiliation. You get, you get to Ibrox every opportunity you can to see the players. Even like many people have done, arriving at the ground and standing outside the front entrance, which I always find a bit kind of strange because you stand there from one o'clock to watch the players going in and out just so you can get a glimpse of them. But of course, by three o'clock, you're going to see them on the pitch anyway. <laughs> so, you know, you seem to have that kind of um, that interest in, in, in just watching them in a kind of normal uh, normal clothes, for example. So did all that. And that's actually where the, the fierce attachment to the club came from. Played football as well. Myself, of course, dreamed of scoring goals against Celtic, whatever. Um, so I was just a normal boy as far as that's concerned and like hundreds of thousands of others around the country. Is a, is a jotter just an analogue iPad? Eh? <laughs> <laughs> don't know, just asking. <laughs> I don't know. I'll need to check what they know. I'll need to check use nowadays. But I suppose, no pad in your computer. <laughs> Stephen, you get in that you'd like you'd like to add to that. No, yeah, what, what about your uh, your you know in school, David? Were all your pals Rangers fans, and uh, or did you yeah. have an influence on any of them? <laughs> yeah, well, I think uh, life for kids at that time is different from the way it is now because you were basically told to go out and play. You know, when you when you, you you didn't hang around the television, you weren't allowed to stay in and watch TV, so you went out to play, and the first thing you grabbed was your ball. So you either kicked the ball about the street or you kicked it in the park, and everybody did it. And if you didn't do it, then then you were you were strange. You know, it was kind of unusual to to have people who. Pardon this printer going to be in the background here. It was unusual to have um, uh, people who weren't interested in football. So so really, at school, everybody played football. I joined the Life Boys because of the football team. Played in that with some you know some really decent players. Um, and uh, and then graduated up to the, the, the different levels and played as well. Never got to professional, got to kind of semi-professional level, but never at the quality of um, clearly the guys who, who managed to play for Rangers. But so you know, I think for every young guy at that time, just wanted a ball. Was that Stephen? What position did you play, David? I played midfield. I was I was always tall. And so I would have been a natural centre-half or, or striker. I could never head the ball, which was probably one of the limitations I had. <laughs> um, and, you know, limited my development as a player. But uh, no, I think it was pretty decent. I played with the Glasgow youth team one time as well. So I did reach um, in a reasonable level. Mm-hmm. You know, understood the game uh, to some extent. But, but uh, never, never attained the levels that I wanted to, you know. How did you get involved then? How did it come about that you became a historian in the club? Well, my father clearly was a big fan. It's always been in the family for a long time. And my father had collected newspaper cuttings from 1945. And um, he went to the Victory Cup final, for example, and the Moscow Dynamo game, whatever. So he had all these newspaper cuttings in a big, big wallet. And um, around that time, the Rangers were planning a museum. This is 1986. And um, I knew one of the directors, Jack Gillespie. Um, one of my best pals was actually Jack Gillespie's son-in-law. And um, and uh, I, I handed him into the club to have a look at it. I said, look, he's, this, the director will maybe find this of interest. Solely that. Um, and, um, and after that, it took a few months for me to hear back for the club. And I thought, I don't want them to lose this. And this book of cuttings because they're very valuable to the family. So I phoned up the club and I said, Look, I handed these in a wee while ago. What, what's happened to them? And the girl said, I'll put you through to Campbell Ogilvy. <laughs> I thought, well, I don't really particularly want to speak to the secretary. I just, <laughs> I just want to know what's happened to them. So put me through to, to Campbell, and Campbell said, Well, you're probably aware we've had turmoil in the, in the board and the guys who were 
assigned to the board to look after the museum project, a guy called Tom Dawson, one of the directors, had been ousted effectively. He says, so I've got nobody to really lead that now. And I just, it was a throwaway comment. I said, well, I'm quite happy to do it. And he said, are you serious? And I said, are you serious? <laughs> so thereafter, thereafter I, I, I got um, asked to come up to meet Campbell, um, told me what he was really looking for, basically to be a curator of the items that were in the, uh, that they accumulated. And uh, it really all kicked off from there. And, and what happened then, I got asked by the Rangers News, can you write an article? Can you do another one in the programme? Can you do another one? Can you do a regular? And then I got BBC or ITV or whoever would call me up and say, can you speak to us about such and such? And, and then could you do a book? And so it all just kind of gathered momentum from there. And that's how it's really developed over the years. And when I started, I wouldn't say I was a historian as such. Uh, I was just fascinated by the club. There were a lot of people um, who were, you know, fiercely interested. People like Robert McElroy, for example, had spent their life, you know, devoted to it. So people knew a lot more about club than I did at that time. So over a period of time, you just do gather an understanding and deeper knowledge and whatever, and that's effectively what's happened over the years. So that's where I am now. I feel as if I've been here since 1872, to be honest. <laughs> well, as such a you know a historic club, the history of the club is that speaks for itself. It's it's why the I mean, even just to the present day, you look at the Haji deal that we just went through. That's the first thing Haji says in the interview with Heart in Hand is the the fact that it's the history of the club that draws you in. Then you get the fan base, then obviously the stadium, the stands, etc. The, the atmosphere on like the Braganite, for instance. Yeah. It must be easy in terms of, obviously for guys like yourself, that history is there to just be explored constantly. You know what I mean? So to actually be asked to do that in official capacity must be an incredible honour. Yeah, it was. I think uh, you, you, you can get beyond that a wee bit, Scott, to, to be honest. I mean, I, I, I don't mean it by any, in any sense that you take it for granted, but I think mm -hmm. what, what happens is your natural interest takes over. So, you know, one of the responsibilities I've got is to do a piece in the programme, which you've probably seen, um, deal with inquiries, whatever, things like this. And, uh, but you, you develop over the years a, a real natural interest. So you find, and I, I'm, I know Stephen's this way too, but you just spend a lot of your spare time just researching the club or whatever. Um, I think we're very fortunate nowadays and it, and it has kind of bred a new, a new group of fans who are interested in history because we've got other information sources at our, our fingertips with the internet that, you wouldn't, that I didn't have, for example, in 1986. I had to go and actually look at physical documents. Mm. So I think having that accessibility to documents engenders much, much more of an interest. In, and uh, and as you said right at the beginning, there's just so many, so many stories attached to the club that I, I think I've got a fraction of them just now. I mean, I, I would say, without exaggerating, if it's not every day, it's every couple of days I come across something new about the club. Um, so, and I just, you know, you, you just, you just see it as a hobby as much as anything else. That's, that's the way I look at it. And I think Stephen is the same. Stephen. Yeah, is that all still in paper forum, David, or has the club digitised any of its historical documents? Well, the sad thing, and and, um, and, I, and I probably should take some plaudits for this, to be honest, because when I walked into the club um, in 86, it was just about six weeks after Game Soon had started, uh, Campbell handed me, handed me a lot of items that they'd accumulated, um, not, a, not a huge amount. I mean, I could put them all in a black bag, for example. Um, and I said, what about the club archives? He said, well, we've got a lot of stuff down in the photographer's room downstairs underneath the stand. He said, I'll get you the key for that. And I went down and I was horrified because in that photographer's room, there were black bin bags full of documents. There were folders that were sitting there. And... Um, I spoke to the painter at the time uh, and I said, because I think it was him who actually opened the door for me, I said, this stuff, this stuff's in a mess. There's a lot of even puddles of urine sitting at the top of some of the bags. And essentially what had happened was they were in the middle of a clear out. And, um, and the painter told me that a lot of the documents had already gone to the skip. And I said, look, could you go back and get them back out? Because... There's some real gems of information here. 
and uh, and he's, he's, he, he did go down and have a look, but they'd gone. Um, so we lost a lot of the archives. So what we've got now, we've still got a pretty healthy archive of paper, files, uh, some minute books, um, training, training books and things like that. But we, we probably lost a vast amount just because the feeling was, as happens in many organisations at the time, that that's just old paperwork. You know, it's, it's just just old letters. We don't need them or whatever. So at that time, I managed to stop it and uh, and secure it. And uh, and now we've you know with the chap in there, Joe, who is cataloging a lot of that stuff and, and whatever. But but no, um, just I see Stephen's disappeared at the moment. But um, but we we haven't digitised it all as yet. Uh, I'm pretty sure that will happen down the road. Do, do you obviously, with yourself, knowing Stephen and, and obviously yeah. Facebook, etc., social media and stuff like that, do you use some of Stephen's stuff as well to look at and see, obviously, past footage? Because, I mean, some of the, the footage that Stephen uploads daily is absolutely frightening and you can sit and watch that all day as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I mean, I regard, uh, even, even what I have, uh, nothing is mine. As such, you know, we've all accumulated bits and pieces over the time, over the years, bits of memorabilia. But as far as the information is concerned, none of it is mine. It belongs to the, 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 the fans, effectively. So any time I come across information, I'm happy to, you know, pass it out, share it, whatever. Because I think you really learn more by exchange with people. So I, I like to exchange with Rangers fans and you yeah. know, Stephen's found some amazing bits of footage that I didn't even know existed. Yeah. Um, and that, whenever Stephen puts someone on his site, for example, that triggers off discussions from people who say, oh, I was there, and, and other people say, I was there, and I stayed in such and such a hotel. And all that is part of the social history attached to the club. So you need to have that dialogue going. So although I've been fortunate enough to to have a, a role in, in uh, coordinating what the club has done, uh, from a historical point of view over the last 34 years. To my mind, I'm just part of a process of people interested in what happens, uh, what has happened to the club over the years. I also like Stephen, to bring you in, I also like Stephen's site that the, some of the ex-players who appear in the videos, you know what I mean, when they played for Rangers, etc., they also engage with the fans on it about the memories and, and the fans then relate, relay back their memories and it's really, really good to, to sit and look at that, you know, and see the chat developing for the players' point of view and for the supporters' point of view. It's fascinating to watch. Yeah, it's the, all, all, the stuff I get is, is I'm very lucky to have and a lot of it's been shared by others. But uh, as, as David said, it's just great to, to share it with everybody. It's not mine. It doesn't, there's no copyright or anything like that. So all, uh, I, I share everything I get. It's always best to do that, and as I say, I've had lots of good conversations with David and other supporters uh, that have, have enabled me to get some of the footage. Yeah, that's quite a, an important role that all this provides, Scott. And that is, I mean, I've done uh, more in family history and whatever. Um, and as people get older, then they're potentially going to take stories and memories with them. So. For example, talking about the old players, uh, I mean, I've been fortunate enough, you know, the, the, the guys I saw in the 64 Cup final, they all became uh, uh, great friends of mine. Um, sadly, some of them have passed away. But I just uh, loved speaking to them about uh, their times at Rangers because they there's, there's information that they have that they've, in many cases they haven't divulged. Not because it's secret or whatever, because they just never thought it was important to people or, or they just forgotten about it. So anytime I, I sit with these guys, I love chatting with them and asking them questions and getting them talking. I remember even one time sitting before a big match, before a match at Ibrox, sitting with Bob McPhail, one of the great legends, Bob. I think, I think he died when he was about 88 or something like that. And uh, now Bob played in the 1928 Cup final. And, uh, you know, signed with the club, 1927, I think it was. Um, great mine of information, very lucid, despite his age, very lucid, no sign of any kind of dementia at all. And he just kept pouring out nuggets of information about what the other players were like and, oh, he was such and such, he was that, whatever. So 
it, we, we, when Stephen puts on his, his films and I write stuff, it does prompt people to come up with their recollections of the game or of a player or of circumstances. And that is all part of the, the social and the, the, the great history of Rangers is to, to try and capture these and understand you know what uh, what people can remember themselves so so, so, so we're, we are provide we're all providing a service you're providing a service by what you do as well and providing a vehicle for that well that's kind of some of the stories obviously the club we know was founded before the song tells a story for lads who had a dream the dream became the most successful football club on the planet how how far back and, and how can i in, in depth i suppose do, do you get to, and it's almost like you know the four guys because of the research and, and the information that you have and that you've researched over the years? I did. I, I worked with Gary Ralston on the, the Gallant Pioneers um, uh, for a long time. We did a lot of research together and we had a, we, we were good pals, but we had a kind of creative difference. It all related to how the thing was being written more than anything else. I, I thought we should probably spend more time looking at the social history, but, but Gary produced a great book and that was it. Um, so, and the factual information in there is fantastic. Um, I do, I do feel like I do know a lot of the characters because I have certainly in doing the program. You focus in on people and you do a lot of researching them individually, and you do get some kind of understanding of them. And I think that's all part of the process for me. So I do believe I understand what these characters were like, um, but. As I say, I, I've always felt that the social history of the club is as much as anything else because things were happening around that time in football, mm-hmm. not just the Rangers. There was a programme in Netflix called The English Game. I don't know if you watched that. Can I set the scene for professionalism and Scots players moving to England uh, 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 You know, back in the 1880s? Um, so I've always been interested in how these guys lived their lives. And you do kind of get an understanding of what they were like, what they did, and whatever. Uh, there was always much more to them, just simply Rangers, but, you know, as Rangers fans, we tend to focus on that alone. Yeah. Stephen? Yeah, no, because it's been done by people who are far more knowledgeable than me. I really kind of... Most of my stuff that I do is, like, 1960 onwards. So there's other people like Sir Ian Manson and other other people who have done a lot of research and as David says, Gary Ralston in the Gallant Pioneers book. So that kind of covers virtually everything from the, the early years. And obviously the Founders Trail is, is a experience to go on and every range of the, the origins of a club. Yeah. We shared our first league title with uh, Dumbarton, which obviously I think is the only title to have been shared probably anywhere I think to be honest yeah, uh, yeah. Well, what are the other, what, what, what is the kind of stories you've got from that season I suppose obviously there's a playoff at Cathkin Park you said you had been there yourself as a, as a boy um, we, 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 we had the playoff and we drew to each I think it was uh, what is your kind of stories for that season is, is there anything that sticks out particularly that maybe it's not been told before well I t- what I've tended to do is uh, I've tended to not focus, I mean, obviously you focus on big, big matches, big occasions, you know, the playoff, for example, and that one, uh, the, the dialogue between the clubs and the SFA that finally uh, resolved uh, how that championship would be decided. Um, but I've tended to look at patterns of change. So, that, so when I think about Dumbarton, I don't, you know, apart from thinking about the sharing, it, I think back to the rivalry we had with Dumbarton. Um, I remember one instance when we, we played down at... Uh, down at Dumbarton, uh, they, were, they were one of the top teams at the time. And uh, what used to happen was that you, you would have a, an umpire for the match who would be selected from one of the sides. Uh, and then you'd have the light effect of the linesman as well, but we called linesman. Um, and uh, Tom, Tom Valance was selected as the umpire for the game. And it got to the stage where he was being accused of being too, now let me do the detail of this. I think he was being accused of being too lenient and not uh, supportive of Rangers' position much. But Tom was, Tom Valance was known as Honest Tom, and he took great umbrage of this accusation that was coming from, from Rangers, fairly senior Rangers people, that 
that he was he was not uh, uh, doing what he should have done to help Rangers in the match. So he actually he threatened to resign and leave the club completely until he was coerced to come back in. So, but it was it was just so important to the club at that time to 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 meet them back in any way that they could and beat them because there was a feeling that they were a, a big club and that they had uh, lots of elements down there that were pulling from them, probably unfairly. So we had a lot of uh, big battles down there, big physical battles down in, down in the Barton. Um, so that, uh, so I, I suppose in our history, to share that first title with them was, was probably quite fitting. But uh, of course, they're, they're, they're long in the distant past as far as being a, a, major, uh, a major club in Scottish football, I would think now. Yeah. Stephen, is that you want to add? No, no, I'm, again, uh, I've, no, I've no footage of it, so, so <laughs> I can't care you much about that season. Yeah. I'm still trying, though, I'm sure they'd some, they'd some home movies. <laughs> yeah, I think the other the other point is, is important to remember, Scott, is that, you know, we're right, you know, Stephen produces vast amounts of information, that produce a lot of information as well. It's not always immediately to recall, you know. Yeah. We've got to get back. I remember when I was at university, yeah. um, one of my lecturers said, he said, you don't have to know everything and be able to answer right away, but you need to know where to be able to go and get the answer. So yeah. in a lot of cases, you know, when folk ask me about a particular player and, and people, the fans expect me to know everything about him, including his date of birth and things like that, and say, well, I can't really remember, but I'll go and, go and find <laughs> it. But uh, there's just so much, so many That'll players. Yeah. It's all in a filing cabinet up there, but it's finding the right drawer, isn't it? That's right. And as you get as you get older, that filing cabinet seems to get smaller. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Full, fuller, overflowing. I've got a, I've got a quick question, if it's all right. Just David, yep, just on. one thing that's always uh, interested me. The in nineteen seventy five, when we won the league for the first time in in eleven years, we. John Gregg obviously went round marking the chariot and the, the game against Airdrie and we yeah. got presented with the league trophy at the end of the match. Uh-huh. Before that, there's never any pictures of any Rangers being presented with the league trophy. Uh-huh. Obviously the last one, the one with yeah. 63, 64, but we would want it. Yeah. But there's never, I don't think the... the the following season, or any ideas where the, the trophy was entered to the club? What do you mean where the trophy went to? What do you mean no, where the previous Where it was presented. Stephen, it's kind of breaking up a wee bit. It's a feed, it's a feed Stephen. Uh, what? Presented. Uh, no, it's kind of, you can kind of, I lost you a wee bit there, Stephen? Well, I'll try and answer as much as I know about right. it. I mean, looking the, the way the way things have the way things have changed over comparatively recent times with um, with trophies is it's more of a spectacle than it was in the past. So, for example, you have the Scottish Cup getting presented on a obviously on a platform, or uh, the League Trophy getting presented, you know, in front of the fans and things like that. Um, uh, and the league flag being unfurled in front of the fans and whatever. But in the past, what tended to happen was that these things were done all behind closed doors. So they were handed over by league officials or by SFA officials or even by um, the chairman of the other club. For example, if you played in the cup final, then the chairman of the other club would hand over the trophy to to his uh, counterpart. Inside, deep inside Hamden or inside the ground where it was won. So it wasn't so much, you know, a, a spectacle as it is, uh, has been in our day where we can go and see the club, uh, the cup being presented to the fans and things like that. Um, so I think probably what you're highlighting is something um, pretty evident as far as the league trophies concerned, Stephen. I think that what happened was that. Uh, at the end, I mean, I'm not certain of this, but I think what happened was after the final match was played, the trophy was won, then I think the club would find that trophy delivered to them to put on the cabinet, rather than, and then they would put it in front of their, you know, in the, the team photographs or whatever. But no big presentation in front of the fans. Yeah. That yeah. seems to have been something that came up later. And then, of course, the other thing that happened uh, during the 60s, but then they stopped it and say, I got a chance to see it. 
was when they uh, they had the lap on I mentioned that for the 64 Cup final where teams would run around the park with the trophy. That was uh, that was that was short-lived um, after uh, concerns about crowd trouble. So the fans weren't allowed to, uh, the players weren't allowed to run around the track um, for uh, for concerns that might intimidate the opposing fans. So. Yeah, I think that I think that stopped the following year after that, wasn't it? Sixty-five. I think Celtic beat us two one. Yeah, and, beat and they, 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 they their fans decided to join the players on the, the yeah. lap of honour and were taunting the Rangers fans. Yeah, yeah. It's just, it. <laughs> it's just sad that these things are uh, yeah. because they were nice. They were nice traditions. Um, uh, you know, it's a pity that we've kind of lost that element of it. But I did get a chance this year, which was important to me as a, a wee boy. So again, going yeah. back, going back, probably before you, obviously, well, no, probably definitely before any real time, is <laughs> we can't touch on a, a, a historical Rangers podcast without mentioning the great Bill Struth. Uh-huh. Obviously, David, you looking at things throughout the years, etc. You hear some players who, also we just lost Bobby Brown recently, but you hear some players who played under Bill Struth and and what he was like. Can you just give us hmm. and, and the listeners just a wee overview of your your knowledge as a Bill Struth, these methods, what he was like, etc. Yeah, I, I was really fortunate. Well, I worked I worked with Stewart in, in producing that book, Mister Struth, the Boss, which I, which I think was. I think it was a pretty good book because it covered a period of time in the history of the club, but also went back, as you mentioned earlier, Scott, to understand what these guys were like. And so I had to cover quite a lot of his personal background, yeah. um, which was interesting. That helped to build my understanding of his character. And as I mentioned before, through the years I've spoken to a lot of players, going back to Bob McPhail, Willie Woodburn, even people like that, um, Willie Wardle, of course, Willie Thornton, uh, a lot of great joke show. All these players had the opportunity of meeting through that period of the club. So, invariably, I did have a chat with him. Bobby Brown was tremendous uh, and great recollection of him. So, the thing that always struck me about Bill Struth was he was a man of great standing to the players. He was uh, basically the club. He set great standards. I don't think he he was alone in that. I think a lot of the standards were established by the previous manager, William Wilton. But he set great standards in the club. He expected great things of the players. Um, he uh, he expected only the best for them. So whenever they went to the theatre, they would have to sit in the best seats, for example. Um, when they went in the train, they had to sit in the best the best seats in the train. Um, best hotels that were available for them uh, because he felt that that was befitting of a Rangers player. So he set these standards for them. Um, he expected a lot from them. He used to care for them in the sense that they knew their frailties in some sense. I did write a story about um, Tony Gillick. Um, it was told to me by a close family friend uh, where Tory had met this uh, girl that was obviously the love of his life. And um, Tory Gillick was a bit of a gambler, um, especially with the, 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 the dogs. And uh, Bill Struth realised that he probably would struggle to be able to buy an engagement ring. So, so Bill called him into the office one day and said, I realise you're probably getting quite serious with this girl. I might end up in an engagement. He said, so what if I take money off your wages every week and for your, for your engagement ring or whatever? So he, you know, he used to have that kind of involvement of managing players and looking after the players and understanding what their needs were. So very much disciplinarian, but also a pretty caring guy as far as the players were concerned. But as far as the club's concerned, he was iconic. I mean, probably the most important guy in the club's history, I would say. Stephen, is there anything you want to ask in regards to the kind of Bill Struth era? Just, obviously he wasn't, I don't think the the tactics were as much uh, in vogue at the time and the players kind of take take mantle for it, like Davy Meikle, John, and uh, George Young, etc. Uh, do you think that was that was something that was just he was an athlete, obviously not a football player. Do you think he was more into the uh, just you know the Rangers the Rangers way rather than what, tactics to to win games? Yeah, I think um, football was different at that time, Stephen. I mean, you, you didn't have a kind of tactical approach as such. So what tended to happen was you picked you picked a team of the best players. Yeah. And um, 
and then you left it up to the team to sort itself out. You know, so you would normally have like the captain that was selected who would who would kind of suss things out, and that happened right up into I would say right up until Davy White's time. Even through the Scott Simon era, there wasn't a lot of tactical work went into it. And even, I dare I say, even Jock Wallace, when I, when I talked to some of the players that played with, with Big Jock, I mean, what, again, one of the great managers of the, of the, of the football club, but, but Jock wasn't tactical. You know, the players will laugh at you if they talk about tactics with Big Jock. To a certain extent, we, we, we tend to get hung up in modern day about tactics. Um, Just you know, if you good players understand the game, um, they should be talking to each other and knowing where the dangers are and dealing with that. Uh, and that's what happened in the past. And certainly in Struth's era, it was a case of put the players out the best 11 that you had and then expect them to be able to, uh, to, to, to do what you needed them to do. Um, so it was very much a case of he was the management of the club, acquiring the players, managing the activities because manager was running the club effectively yeah. at that time yeah. you know ordering in the pencils yeah. and the toilet rolls and things like that um but uh but no a, a huge huge character but uh, of a of a different era but um but, but I, I, yeah i think he's great the greatest thing was he expected the rangers players to be uh no it's not just for 90 minutes in a, in a week you were a you were representing the club the whole time and I think that yeah. that's a that's a great thing that should be instilled in the players now. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I think so. And the, and the thing is, it's uh, he, he came out with this maxim: only the only only the best is good enough for Rangers. So he set these standards. I remember even going to a, a League Cup final in the eighties, um, stand outside Hamden, and knew some of the players pretty well. Even at that time, although I wasn't involved, um, and I watched their players, and they were immaculate. They come off with, uh, you know, ties, lovely jackets. You know, they just looked like film stars. And then I watched Celtic coming off the bus and they come off in tracksuits and whatever. And uh, and I know that things have kind of changed in that degree now. But to me, it just looked, you know, we looked to the old professional team. Things move on, of course, as far as these things are concerned. But certainly at that time, that was a kind of follow-on from the truth era of the players had to be turned out. If they were turned out, um, and their best and looking good, then they would have a better chance of producing the goods in the park. See, I like that nowadays, and I think it's what sets our club aside for many, is that even coming up to the present day, the Rangers manager is always suited and booted to the side of the, the park. To me, that's how yeah. the Rangers manager should always be, and you, and you look sometimes, and obviously you've mentioned Celtic, and you see whoever the manager is, he has the choice, if it's a, a suit, track suit, whatever, it's, it's down to his individual choice. I quite like mm. The fact that Rangers, it's, that choice is taken away. That we do things differently. We do things in our way. It's our tradition. It's it's what we believe in. And I think it sets us aside for for the majority of clubs that don't obviously act in that way. And obviously, I'm not saying they're wrong in doing that. But I just like the Rangers way. Yeah, I, th- I do as well, Scott. I think it's something that goes right through our whole club. You know, it's a, it's all part of our up- upbringing because you know there's certain standards that we've got to attain. Mm-hmm. Rangers and um, and you know you, you live by that you know you always want to be I mean okay I've got a t-shirt on today just now but you know I would normally I, I would not normally go into iBox unless I've got a shirt and tie on um, and these are all traditions I mean it might look old-fashioned but I think that I think they're good traditions to have in terms yeah. of the standards that we expect in the club. Yeah obviously you touched on okay. uh, Jock Wallace, Jock Wallace again a huge figure and our club our podcast is called the Battle Fever Podcast, and I unfortunately wasn't about around to see Jock as Rangers manager, but I would have loved to have been. I love even just the interview; he's on the park, and I was confident before it started, etc., etc. That to me is just the Rangers way. It's just it doesn't matter who we're playing against. We're Rangers. We're confident with our own ability. But again, is there any stories of Jock Wallace that, that maybe have not been told that, that you've gathered throughout the years that, that you can share with? Probably. I mean, I'm, the, the one major story I have, um, which um, I, I, I deliberated for a long time over, um, I went to his testimonial dinner and uh, I was talking to him in the, in the foyer and, uh, and he started to pour out as to why he left Rangers. At that time, it had been a big secret why, why he had left Rangers and he was determined he wasn't going to speak to anybody on it and all that kind of stuff. And it, it started off a whole range of speculation of, wild speculation as to why I left because it was all quite sudden in 78 
and um, you know, after winning the cup final, after winning the treble. So um, he explained to me why he'd left, and I said, and that was it, kind of finished the conversation. I had to go off and get a taxi at times, so I left him. And as I was leaving, I was about 20 yards away, and he shouted across the hall, don't you ever tell anybody that, don't you ever tell anybody that. And I said, no, it's fine, Jock, it's fine. So after he died, um, I wrote a book uh, on the managers, and I did explain the background because I felt that what he was trying to do was not protect himself, he was trying to protect Rangers. Uh, and, I, and I don't think it really, at that time, it really cast us in a good light. Um, uh, I can understand why it was done, but effectively it was all down to money. He'd been offered um, a, a, a double, double his salary to go to Leicester. We were in the English second division, and he couldn't understand why, when he was a manager of Rangers, we were the top team in country as far as he was concerned. He just won the treble. Why a club down south would offer him that? And he was on a, a pittance, basically. And uh, Willie Waddle was quite firm that there should be this wage structure that applied all the way through the, the players. It was actually Graham Soonis that had to end up changing the wage structure. Ibrox, um, you know, there was a limit in terms of what they could earn. So, um, so I, I think you know, in, in the view of all the kind of wild speculation that was surrounding um, Big Jock uh, at the time as to why he left, I felt no, it's, it's important just to kind of clear things here and re make people realise that he was really dying to be and he only left over something that was as, as paltry as, as an injustice, a financial injustice. And, uh, and it was pretty well received when I came out with that. And I even spoke to members of the family, the Wallace family afterwards as well. And, uh, and I think it had set the scene pretty well for Jock and, and removed a lot of the kind of the, the, the wild rumours that were flying around. Uh, they'd fallen out with Willie Waddle. They had fallen out with him over that matter, but they were actually really, really good pals apart from it. So it was, it was a short-lived thing and, and, uh, and he always remained a great Rangers fan, of course. Talked to all the players that played with him as well. The players just loved him. I mean, he was tough as nails, you know, yeah. really, really physical. You know, they knew where they stood with him, obviously. Uh, Gullin Sands and all that kind of stuff is, yeah. is legendary, but but you know they loved they loved Joe Wallace because he he was a good man manager and that was that was a big thing about it. See, so he wasn't tactical, but you could uh, you could you could get the best out of them. Yeah. So uh, they were all they all just loved Big Joe. Yeah, he's. We were talking to Gordon Smith a couple of weeks ago now, and he had yeah. said the story about obviously the, the old firm game we were two 0 down against Celtic. And Jock had the reputation. Obviously, Gordon had just signed for Rangers at the time. I think actually was his, his old firm debut. And Jock obviously had the, the reputation as being a hothead and he's going to go bonkers at the fact that we're turning down to Celtic, etc. But he didn't. He came in, he was so calm and said, listen, we've been the better team. We keep playing the way we've been playing. We we know we'll beat them. We're a better team than them on and off the park. So let's just go back out and do what we've done. And Rangers were back out. I think Gordon Smith scored two and we won 3-2 that day. That can, to me is a measure of the man. I can tell you a good story about that as well, Scott, because I, I was I, I went to the the match but I didn't have a ticket. Yeah. Um you could generally get a, a ticket outside the match for these. I was playing football, so I didn't have a season ticket, but I managed to get I managed to get, I managed to get to that game and uh, I went along and tried outside, couldn't get a ticket. Um so I thought, well what did I do? Did I just go home? Um I'll hang about and wait and see. Uh, then develops. So then at half time, they opened the gates to let fans out, which was unusual because all the Rangers fans were, a lot of Rangers fans were streaming out because they were so disgusted by the, yeah. the result. And uh, I remember one guy saying to me, You don't want to get in there, pal, it's just terrible. And I thought, Well, I do want to get in because I want to see the game, I want to see yeah. Rangers. So because they'd opened the gates, I managed to sneak in and uh, it was, I often wonder how these guys felt that left at half time. And as you say, Mister, a fantastic saying, half performance. And the interesting thing was at the end of it, um, I had parked my car away up near the Celtic end, and I thought, and because you've won the game, you've got a scarf on you, a bit of bravado. Right. And I thought, you know what? I'm not going to wait till they go. I'm just going to walk up there. So I walked through them. They were all absolutely disgusted with their team, and it was quite interesting to hear their comments because they were lambasting Jockstein and whatever <laughs> for his tactics and. Uh, Shoggy Edwardson had played in the game and he'd been up front and he brought him back or whatever, whatever. but it was just a, an, an, an enormous pride knowing that I'd walked, that I'd uh, seen such a, 
such a, a great performance for Rangers in the same half and walked up through them and, and listened to all their mumps and groans. I don't know if I would do it nowadays, but uh, yeah, no. uh, that, that, that was the icing in the cake for me. <laughs> Obviously, <laughs> the, advocate I, I come back and I thought about it in sad circumstances, but we know the story and obviously maybe touch on it again about the, the Ibrox disaster and the, the, yeah. the crush on the, on the stairwell 13. A huge moment in our history and also a huge moment in football because you've seen after that Rangers really been at the forefront of, of changing the way stadiums are and the way the football experience was for a fan going on a match day. What, yeah. what's, your, what's your views on that? What's your memories obviously of of that at that time and, and subsequent the knowledge you have now given that you're able to look back and, and get into the archives about so much about the club? Yeah, um, I can remember the I can remember the, the day vividly. I wasn't at the game because I was uh, I wasn't allowed to go to the game, um, and uh, my father was working, so I wouldn't I wouldn't be allowed to go on my own. But one of my one of my pals, uh, it wasn't a close pal, but it was a, a guy I played football with. He was one of the ones that was uh, killed, sadly. Um, I, I lived in Kirkintilloch at the time. There were four of the guys, and I knew one of the girls in my class at primary school had a brother who died in it as well. So uh, there were four families there, I think they were all under 21, the boys, uh, who, who died. So the, there was kind of personal thing from that point of view that we, I knew names of people that had been involved in it. But I also knew about it because that was the state where I always come down. Yeah. And, uh, and it, was, it was scary uh, because you would walk towards the stairway, but as you got close to it, um, what you tended to find was that the crushing increased and you could only see immediately in front of you what tended to be a guy at the back of a guy's head. Yeah. And as you came towards the staircase, you never knew where the stair, the first step was. So you were just kind of walking. Sometimes you could actually lift your feet off the ground, which I did once, but I never did it after that. And, um, and as you actually moved and moved, then suddenly you dropped on that first step, you had no idea where the first step was. You had a fair idea it was going about there, but suddenly you dropped. And then strangely, after that, it kind of opened up a wee bit and you had a wee bit more space. But all the, the problems in Ibrox disaster happened, on, I think, in one of the landings. Yeah. You had a step and then a landing, a step, a landing, whatever. And uh, it seems to be that that's where a lot of the crushing took place. But terrible um, situation. And I think, although Willie Waddle gave us the the, 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 the Winners' Cup, of course, and uh, is legendary for that, I think the way the club rallied around him, directors as well, because the directors went backwards to some extent. At that time, they were you know completely shocked. But Willie Waddle took control of everything, took control of the attendance at the funerals and took control of the, 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 the PR from the club's point of view and and uh, all the inquiry information, he was right at the forefront of that. So he really, really did manage the club. So, so, and of course, instigated the stadium that you can see behind you there. Yeah. You know that uh, uh, based in the the Dortmund Westfalen uh, Stadium. Um, so he instigated all that, and with the the thought that um, fans should be able to come to the ground and not fear for their, their safety. So that's really. Uh, down to to him and his his uh, foresight. I and I say. think I think even to today, and despite all the modern structures that are out there, I think Ibrook still is up there with the best of them, given obviously the history of the club and what's what's took place at that stadium, and also the achievements that are inside that stadium. I'd, I I wouldn't thank you to be quite honest with you as a fan for for one of these super stadiums because I just don't I think it's soulless. And I, when you go to Ibrook, you can't help but feel. The history there, the, and including the sadness of the, the Ibrox disaster. Obviously, we've got the John Gregg mm-hmm. statue, but we've all got things in our history that we look like, we look back on, and, and it's it's a huge part of our history that might not be the, the greatest success story, but it's part of our history and it's made our club. And I'd say it, even younger fans like myself, and even younger than me, it, we all know the story, and it probably brings us together a wee bit as as a fan base. They know that nobody should go to the football and never come back, you know. And it really, really yeah. sad that that took place. It does. It's all part. It is all part of the history, and it's uh, and, and the good thing is the, the club um, commemorate it every year. Yeah. But um, but I think as you talk about the stadium, the stadium, the stadium's magnificent, and um, I think the fact we've got that main stand that was opened in yeah. 1928 
is huge because everybody, um, there, there will be some people around who, who were born prior to the construction, but, but just about every Rangers fan that's around only remembers that stand. So it's a tangible piece of history that they've lived through. Mm-hmm. And the, the club have done remarkably well to, to wrap the, the new stadium around the old um, and, um, and created something that looks state-of-the-art when you walk inside it. But, of course, when you're inside the main stand, you see this has got all the um, uh, the glory of a, a stately home, as many people have said. So we're very, very fortunate to mix the old with the new yeah. and, and do it almost seamlessly. So, yeah, I would agree with you, Scott. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't want a, a big ultra-modern stadium because they are, they are souls. Yeah, you, one of the, my favourite transitions as well, and, and you actually conducted the ceremony one year, or probably probably a good few years actually, but certainly since they started showing it really on the screens, as the Living Cup ceremony takes place, the first home game every new year. Mm-hmm. A fantastic story, again, one that, that I, just sums up Rangers Football Club as far as I'm concerned, the fact that we still continue that tradition all these years later is a credit to guys like yourself and, and the directors at the club who, who continue that each year. What's it like for you, obviously, taking part in that ceremony? You're the one usually that tells the story of what happened there. What's that like for yourself? It was a great honour when I was asked to do it the first time around. What tends to happen now is the, is the chairman, uh, the chief executive does it, Stuart Robertson does it now, and one of our yeah. directors, so, uh, which is fine, and it's a natural kind of development of it. I, I was doing it in a period when we didn't really have any directors at the end, yeah. any affinity to the club as such. So they, you know, they all kind of looked at each other and thought, "What's this all about? What do we do? <laughs> what a what a, an indication of the problems that went through at that time." But um, no, for me, it was it was it was obviously a great honour. But it's not. I, I never really saw it so much about me. I think the point point that you raised uh, is the important one. It's a, a great tradition that we keep going, and um, and I think that's what makes a club great. That we are we are mindful of our traditions. It doesn't matter how badly we do at the field at any particular time, that we are a club that's based in traditions and they are, they've got a good um, resonance behind them and it's nice to have and the fans clearly, you know, yourself um, obviously like that kind of thing. So it's something that we do, not from a PR point of view, but just because it's important to us as a club and we, we should continue to do it. You know, the, the club is very much based in that. Yeah. Can you touch a wee bit on the story for those who maybe don't know, but obviously yeah. I'm sure majority do. Yeah, yeah, it uh, all related to a mining disaster down at uh, the Holditch Colliery in Stoke in 1937. A lot of people lost their lives. Uh, there was a, a, a various initiative set up to try and establish a, a, a fund for the, the relatives. And um, uh, it also coincided with the, the coronation of the king. And so what happened was that uh, Stoke City decided that what they would do uh, was to create these um, these loving cups to commemorate the coronation. And so the, uh, Sir Francis Joseph, who was the chairman of Stoke City, had organised this through one of the potteries down south uh, to create these 30 cups that commemorated football. This was football's toast to the king. The Holdage Colliery disaster didn't really feature in the situation at that time. So they passed all these cups out to the member clubs of the English FA and various other dignitaries, including the British Museum, the Lord Provost of uh, Stoke, and also gave one to the King. Um, so that was it, the end of the story, as far as anybody was concerned. Then when the disaster took place, Rangers were, and I, I always made the point, that Rangers were and are the preeminent club in the country. And so as a as a as a, 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 um, a consequence of that, we were invited to play Stoke City down at the Victoria ground to raise money for the dependents. We went down, played the match. Pretty uninspiring match, I think, by all accounts. I think it finished 0-0, in fact. And um, we uh, we raised a lot of money for the dependents. So, and thanks for that and gratitude for that, uh, Stoke City said, um, we'd like to give you this presentation of the cup. And the cup wasn't, and I've read various... Uh, stories associated with this, but the true story is it wasn't the spare cup. It was a, it was a cup that belonged to Sir Francis Joseph himself, uh, the guy who created it. So he gave his cup to to Rangers and asked that the club should, on an annual basis, toast the monarch 
and toast football. So, um, so for the first match of the new year, every every year since then, the club the cup has come out of the cabinets filled up with champagne or whiskey. More recently, it's been whiskey, whiskey and lemonade, which I hate to say. <laughs> and uh, it's passed around the visitors on our first match of the UC of the the, the new year. So we've had um, various clubs in recent times have appeared at Ibrox and enjoyed the the ceremony when we then pass a cup for a toast to the monarch. Uh, one of the things I started off years, years back was something I'd seen in the first ones, which was to sing God Save the Queen <laughs> as soon as the ceremony was finished. So I started that back again, but but uh, the club decided not, not to continue that. Um, <laughs> uh, but, uh, but the uh, but the tradition is, is a great one. And the, and the thing I liked about it was when I used to watch in the early years in the 80s and 90s, was that at that time we played Celtic every second year for the first match in New Year, of course. So we used to have the Celtic directors in Ibrox uh, standing to attention. <laughs> for the Queen. God's sake. <laughs> but but to, their, to their credit, I, I remember, and it was pointed out to me that this would happen by Campbell Ogilvy. I can remember the senior Celtic directors used to stand taller and sing louder than anybody. Yeah. Um, you know, like uh, uh, Mr. Kelly, Robert Kelly and, and the white people in white, whatever, they used to stand and sing as one with yeah. everybody else. So, so it was nice. It was a nice tradition. Yeah. And, uh, and it did actually show to me that at that level, I mean, it changes from, you know, from era to era, but at that level, the clubs did go in pretty well. You know, they, they were involved in lots of things together. So, you know, although there was maybe out in the, out in the streets, fans were maybe exchanging other gifts, yeah. you know. But uh, certainly, certainly there, that we had maintained standards and, and that was respected by all the parties in the, in the Yeah, I'm conscious of obviously the time, David. I don't want to take up any more time than, than I have yeah. for your own. Yeah. Um, yeah. But um, there's a couple of things just I want to touch on before we finished. One being yeah. 2012. I don't think we can have a, a look back at Rangers history without mentioning again something that's not exactly a proud moment in our history, but mm-hmm. it's part of our history and I think we have to own it as such. Well, mm-hmm. f- from the inside, we spoke to Colin Stewart, um, we spoke to a good few people, uh, players, etc. at that time. What, for mm-hmm. yourself, what was your thoughts and feelings at that time? The club obviously announced it was going into administration. It's a bit like, a bit like COVID to a certain extent. It's almost like a new world, you know, you're, yeah. you're, you're living in a kind of bubble. You're just almost dealing with it on a uh, day-to-day basis and trying to get to grips with what it actually means and whatever. Um, I was actually away in, in holiday. I was away. One of my pals is Derek Parlane, and I was away with Derek and his wife and uh, uh, other friends in, in uh, Lanzarote when the news came through. And it came through. I did t- heard suggestions about it, and then it came through a phone call from somebody at Daily Record, some comment from me. But uh, uh, just stunned, basically. And then after what happened, it was just terrible because, uh, you know, obviously with people walking about who are, had no connection with the club whatsoever, yep. we've still got to do what we do, you know, so we have got to keep the club going. We've got to, so I remember sitting down with the stewards and we all, because we all work in a, you know, a lot of us work in match days and the, the view was, well, we've just got to do what we do because there's a lot of people, Rangers fans coming here and whatever, and we've just got to be what we, we have and do what we are. But it was easier for us in that respect because we were just doing what we did on a Saturday, which was attending to fans and whatever. Um, where it was really difficult was in the, the, the staff. Who, I mean, I'm only part-time in the club, so you know, I don't get much money, if at all, most of the time. Um, so it wasn't important to me from, from a financial point of view at all. But uh, there's a lot of people who rely on it. Uh, for the livelihood and a lot of people were paid off yeah. at that time and that was just tragic um, and, and it's in that regard that I've got to pay tribute to uh, to Sandy Jardin. Sandy was huge, immense in the whole thing because he was a kind of rallying point for a lot of the staff um, so what you found was that the staff, he was a go-to person Not, I mean I was always, he was always a go-to person for me anyway but but for a lot of the staff who were concerned about jobs, they would go to Sandy. Sandy would go and speak to the, the new board or whatever and whatever. So Sandy was the, the kind of job, uh, Willie Wardle of his, of his era uh, during that 
build back. Just weird, weird situation. Yeah. I think the thing that always, always struck me is, was that they can do what they like with Rangers, but at the end of the day, we're still Rangers. Correct. Correct. And to be honest, I mean, we've we've got a next week on our podcast as a special, and it's thanks to, to Jim Hanna for, for helping us with it. But we we have a whole well, two podcasts, etc., dedicated to Sandwich Arden, his life and career as, yeah. as a player at Rangers. And then the podcast with Jim is more to do with off field stuff and his roles that he's had at the club throughout the year throughout the years. And like I said to Colin, I would say it yourself, and obviously Sandy unfortunately is not here, but Guys like like you guys really for the supporters, we we can't thank you guys enough because you kept, as far as we're concerned, for the inside you kept our club going. You kept our club that we still recognise our club, and, and they still come out the other end. Yet and still have guys like yourself and Colin. Obviously, sadly we, we've not got Sandy, but yourself and Colin there, amongst many others as well, is just terrific for us as a support because that's what we are we're a huge family and and to keep you guys with us throughout this has been has been tremendous and it's great to, to still hear you obviously talking about rangers in such a, a positive way because you're still a fan like the rest is you know i know that's well i think as a point scott we are fans and uh, and it was difficult through because you had different eras of you know obviously like say charles Bean, whatever there were some nice folk yeah uh, come in, uh, you know the uh, graham what's james graham wallace wasn't it Graham Wallace, Graham, really, really nice guy. Very, very uh, fishing guy and probably in any other time would have been a you know a great asset to the club. There were a lot of nice people that came along and tagged onto it, but of course then you had other people who had other motives in the whole thing. Yeah. Um, for us, on, on, uh, you know, in my level, we just had to, you know, they were our bosses, so we just had to deal with them as our bosses and do what you had to do. Um, and then just wonder where it was going to take us. Uh, not personally, but... As a, as a club, but, but Sandy, um, you know, I got to know Sandy personally over a long, long period of time, and um, uh, and he, to me, he was a guy who just threw himself into this battle. Um, his wife maintains that that was one of the reasons why he got cancer. I don't know why, if that's the case, but he did, um, he did, he did show his his real love for the club. During that, that time, and he was so important to the to the the staff around the place as a, a kind of rallying point and a connection with the past to some extent, because everybody else that was revolving around us, apart from all the stewards who many had been there even longer than me, um, the, we needed some kind of tangible connection with what we saw to be proper Rangers, and um, yeah. there weren't a many around at that time, unfortunately. Obviously, bringing up to the present day under Stephen Gerrard, we're going next year. Regardless of how last season finished and our thoughts on that, and I'm sure we all have thoughts on that, uh, we need to go and stop next season, then winning the league again. How far away and how would you assess Stephen Gerrard's time at the club? How would you assess how far we are away from actually getting over that line? I think that's probably for, for others to kind of comment, but I, I think we've got a decent team. Um, I think we've got a really decent team as it is. So, you know, they've all strengthened. The club has strengthened in recent times. I'm sure it will continue to strengthen. Um, I'm sure they'll learn from their mistakes. Um, and I know from, you know, they've talked to our players during the 10 in a row, whatever uh, uh, campaign that we had, that there are pressures that come on in nine and there are different pressures that come on in 10. So Celtic have got to contend with that and we've got to contend with that. Um, and it's going to get down to the quality of the players to be able to to adjust to that situation. And um, I think I think we'll do all right. We've uh, I'm really impressed with Stephen. I'm really impressed by the whole backroom. To be honest, I'm not just saying it because of work with the club. I'm really impressed by the professionalism and their attitude. Um, I think he's we're, we're lucky to have him. And I think he'll be doing everything he can to make sure it happens. But, I mean, even my registration, my car registration is SG20, <laughs> SG2055. <laughs> so, so, so it's going to, to happen this year. Right? Have. I need to change my car. <laughs> so, so, uh, so um, no, I, I, Celtic will add, they'll add players as well. It's going to be difficult. It was difficult last year. It should have been better than it was. We know that we had it in our hands. They'll learn from that, so it's going to be a big, big challenge. But and I think the other thing is this whole lockdown thing puts other 
elements to it as well because you know we could we could well face a situation where we get football behind closed doors. It'll be interesting yeah. to see how that impacts and things. But, but um, that's that's for others too. I'm I'm the historian. I'll talk about <laughs> it. <laughs> get me on. Get me on next year. Okay, on next year we'll talk about fifty-five. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you. I'll tell you. I'll tell you how great it was. Hopefully so. Well, uh, no, I'm still. I'm confident. I'm confident. I'm confident, Scott. Good, good. David, thanks very much. And again, just echoing what I said previously through our hard times, thanks to yourself and guys like Colin Stewart and Sandy, etc., for keeping our club going. Ali McCoy's comes into that as well, for keeping our club going. And mm-hmm. as fans, I don't think we'll ever be able to thank, thank you guys enough. So thanks for your time of day and we, thanks for that. Thanks, Scott. We never kept it going. The fans did. That's the same thing. It's important <laughs> to recognise the fans kept the club going. Thank so, uh, <laughs> ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.